Lord of the Flies is one of those books that just about everyone is required to read in school. So chances are you've probably read it at some point, or at least seen the film. But in case you've forgotten the basic story, let me remind you. It's a story about a group of English boys who get stranded alone on an island. And pretty soon they start forming into groups. Some of them follow a boy named Ralph, and some start to follow another boy named Jack. And then the longer they're there, the more unruly they become. And after a while, conflict and violence erupt. And one of the boys is beaten to death. And then another one, a friend of Ralph's named Piggy, ends up getting murdered. And then finally, when it seems that they have devolved into little more than violent savagery, finally the boys are discovered by a British naval ship. And right as they're discovered, at the very end of the book, the horror of what has happened begins to sink in. And we read one final paragraph describing first Ralph's and then the other boy's response. For a moment, Ralph had a fleeting picture of the strange glamour that had once invested the beaches, but the island was scorched up like dead wood. Simon was dead. The tears began to flow, and sobs shook him. He gave himself up to them now for the first time on the island, great shuddering spasms of grief that seemed to wrench his whole body. His voice rose under the black smoke before the burning wreckage of the island. And infected by that emotion, the other little boys began to shake and sob too. And in the middle of them, with filthy body, matted hair, and unwiped nose, Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy. It's a heartbreaking ending to a tragic story, but there's something fitting to Ralph's tears. His grief is painful to witness, but it's the right response. Because what he's responding to is the horror and the devastation that have come as a result of sin, or as the narrator puts it, the darkness of man's heart. Childhood should be a time of innocence and friendship and play. But what happened on that island was exactly the opposite. Innocence was exchanged for cruelty, friendship for rivalry and dissension, and play for violence. Ralph knew that wasn't how things were supposed to be. He was horrified, and so he wept. And, and that, I suggest, that is exactly what we find taking place in the fourth chapter, the fourth poem of the Book of Lamentations. After the third chapter, with its talk of God's faithfulness, you, you might expect to find a shift away from grief and lament and toward the hope of redemption. But that's not really what we discover when we turn to Lamentations 4. Instead of hope, we find another poem filled with pain. But there's a good reason for that. First, because it's true to life. 
As those who have experienced trauma or grief know, it's not something that is quickly overcome. Those who are grieving may feel moments of great hope and faithfulness, like what we read in chapter 3, but that doesn't mean the sense of loss and sorrow are gone all of a sudden, that they won't return. No, as one psychologist who specializes in trauma puts it, grief is a process. There is no way to go over, around, or under. We must go through it. And that's what the poet is doing. He's pushing through the ongoing grief that the people of Jerusalem feel in the wake of their destruction. But that's not the only reason that this fourth poem is focused on lament. The other reason is that while the earlier poems spoke specifically about the horrors that Jerusalem had suffered and tried to reckon with how to relate that to the God who had allowed those horrors in chapter 2, in this chapter, the poet turns his attention, much like Ralph did in that scene from Lord of the Flies, to the destruction that comes in the wake of sin. Let me explain what I mean. The poet begins by drawing attention to how much the state of Jerusalem is in direct contradiction, the current state, it's in direct contradiction to the way things should be. Once upon a time, the children of Jerusalem were like gold and precious gems of incalculable worth. Now, he says, they are being treated as worthless, like nothing more than common clay pots. Once upon a time, the prosperity of the city could be seen in the rich and delicate food and fine clothing that the wealthy enjoyed. And now, he says, those same people are dying of hunger and covered in ashes. But more heartbreaking than all that, young babies, infants, who should be able to depend on the care and the love and the protection of their mothers are being neglected, abandoned, and even abused. In verse 4, the poet compares the mothers of Jerusalem to wild ostriches who were at that time believed to habitually abandon their eggs before they even hatched. And then in verse 10, in probably what's one of the most horrifying verses of this entire book, he says, the hands of compassionate women cooked their own children. They became nourishment for them and the shattering of my people's daughter. The reformed theologian, Cornelius Plantinga describes the effects of sin. He says it's, it's a distortion, that sin is a vandalism of creation. A world suffering under the effects of sin is a world, he says, in which everything is not the way it's supposed to be. That's a good description of the horrors of Lord of the Flies. And it's a good description of what this poet is saying about Jerusalem. Now, of course, you could say that Jerusalem is not the way it's supposed to be because of, because of the tragedy that has befallen them. They've been besieged. They've been attacked. But the poet makes it clear where the real cause of their misery lies in verse 6. Now, the English Standard Version, which I often refer to, 
it translates this verse to say that the chastisement of Jerusalem has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, suggesting that the punishment they've suffered is greater than that of Sodom. But the Hebrew of the verse is tricky, and a more literal translation, like the New American Standard Bible, is probably more accurate when it says, for the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. That's the cause of the horrors that now haunt Jerusalem. That's why things are not the way they are supposed to be. This is the direct result, he's saying, of the iniquity and sin of the people, so great that it eclipses even Sodom. That becomes even clearer in verse 13, where we read, This was for the sins of Jerusalem's prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Although he doesn't specify exactly what acts of violence he has in mind, this reference to shedding blood, it's pretty clear what he's referring to. The iniquity of Jerusalem, which the prophet Jeremiah had spent years prophesying against for so long, this iniquity extended even to those religious leaders who'd been tasked with guiding and teaching the people, leading them in the way they should go. Even they, the poet says, have given themselves over to corruption and to violence. They were supposed to serve as the shepherds of God's people, but instead they were the ones engaging in the slaughter. Of course, although we can't personally know, we can't experience and see exactly what trauma this poet witnessed, we too can relate to the horror that he's expressing. Because we too live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. Our news feeds are filled with stories constantly describing the, the terrible consequences of human greed and envy and anger and lust and what we do to one another. Now we may not know of any mothers who have been driven to cannibalize their own children, but we're all familiar with the reality of child neglect and abandonment and abuse. And while we may not have ever experienced priests and prophets acting as a violent mob and murdering the innocent, there's no escaping the horrific ongoing discovery that we hear about all the time of times when religious leaders have used their position to prey on and to abuse those under their care. The world in which we live is a world that continues to experience the horror of sin. And we would do well to follow the example of this this ancient Jewish poet, the author of Lamentations, not averting our eyes, but joining him in lament. You may remember that in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that blessed are those who mourn. Well, in the fourth century, a church father by the name of Gregory of Nyssa preached a sermon on that saying, blessed are those who mourn. And in his sermon, he said that the sorrow to which Jesus is referring is a sorrow, a mourning over our own sin. 
Such sorrow, he says, is a, is a kind of medicine for our souls because it leads us away from our sin and toward repentance. But then Gregory goes further and he says that the mourning Jesus is referring to, it's not just a mourning over our own personal sin, what we have been guilty of, but instead it's a mourning, a sorrow over the human condition as a whole. We ought to weep, he says, when we recognize the beauty of life as God intended it, because then, then we can't help but realize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. As he himself put it, should we not bewail our misfortune when we contrast our former beatitude with our present misery? What was exalted has been brought low, and what was made in the image of heaven has been reduced to earth. What was meant to rule has been enslaved, and what had been created for immortality has been destroyed by death. Both Ralph and the author of Lamentations looked at the horrors around them, and they saw in those horrors the loss, the end of innocence, and the darkness of human hearts, and they wept. And they weren't alone. 600 years after the book of Lamentations was written, another man, a man named Jesus, rode a donkey in triumph into the city of Jerusalem. And as he entered the city, he was, he was greeted with celebration and song and praise. If you had been present in Jerusalem that day, you may have thought that all of the city's problems Everything that Lamentations talked about, the horrors of those days, that they were all long behind, and that now at last Jerusalem would finally enjoy the peace and the prosperity that it had long hoped for. But you would be wrong. Within four decades, the city would once again be destroyed, and its people would once again be sent into exile. And that's because despite all of the great celebration that accompanied Jesus's entrance into the city, that day, even that day, sin still persisted and Jesus knew it. And so Luke tells us that when Jesus drew near the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus knew that the iniquity and the violence that plagued the hearts of the people of the city of Jerusalem back in the time of Jeremiah and Lamentations. He knew that that iniquity was still present and he knew the destruction that would follow. And so, so he wept. Jesus wept for the end of innocence. He wept for the darkness that is in man's heart. He wept 
that things are not the way they're supposed to be. He joined his voice with the author of Lamentations, and he taught us what it means when he said, blessed are those who mourn.